it sounds almost, uh, you know, how can one little moot have such an impact on your life? But I see it with letters from former students who do come back and say, thank you. By law students. For past, present, and future law students. Bringing you information to help your career. This is The Law School Show with Rishi and Chris. Chris, my man, how you feeling? Feeling really good because 30 days left of law school. Can you believe it, Rishi? I cannot believe it. I just finished one of my exams yesterday. Three more exams should go, and then the law school journey is over. All right, classes winding down, exams ramping up. Time to bring this thing home and execute. That's exactly right, my man. Mooting. The word moot literally means that it doesn't matter. So why does mooting matter for law students, Rish? It is a crucial experience for anybody in law school, but instead of listening to us, you should listen to the very, very important guest that we have on the show today. We have Professor Anthony Damesis. He's a professor at University of Ottawa, as well as Common Law Moot Court Coordinator. And he has had a lot of success coaching moot teams, both nationally and internationally. Um, he coached a team that won the William C. Viss International Commercial Arbitration Competition in 2011. Yeah, and his teams have also done really well at Phillips C. Jessup International Law Moot Court co Competition, both at the Canadian rounds as well as internationally. So much valuable info that we decided to chop this into two part. This part, episode one, what are we talking about, Rishi? The first thing that we talk about is how do you kill that moot tryout? What are the things that a coach is looking for during that tryout? Then once you're on the team, how do you become as coachable as possible? And finally, we wrap this part up by talking about what is the first thing you should do when you have that moot problem in your hands? Part two will likely launch in two weeks. And then going forward throughout the summer, we plan to launch podcasts on a bi-weekly basis. If that changes, Rishi and I will let you know. And we also wanted to wish all of you good luck for the upcoming exams. You have 30 days to go. Finish strong. Give it your best. Introducing Professor Anthony Damesis. Professor Damesis, how are you doing? Very well. In fact, uh, we just got back from a practice mood in New York City where we had to show certain schools that have a great reputation, what a real reputation looks like. So that was a fun weekend. <laughs> what were a couple of the big learnings from the New York experience? From the students' perspective, it's very eye-opening to see that students from around the world, and there were schools from Denmark, from Germany, from Japan, China, that speakers for whom English is not their first language can be equally, if not more, effective than native English speakers. I think North Americans sometimes forget that although English is our first language, other countries have mastered it, and it means that we really need to up our game. Yeah. So clearly, mooting is something that's very close to your heart. Why do you think it's very important for a law student to have at least one, if not more, mooting experiences during their legal studies? So, yes, you're absolutely right. It's close to my heart. I love mooting. I love it because I see the effect and the impact it has on students. You come to law school, you learn about cases, maybe you learn a little bit about writing, but you never get a chance to really put it all together and see how it works. And then even if you might have that opportunity, to see how it works 
against other schools and the chance to see how other schools look at the same problem mm -hmm. and come to different conclusions is uh, an experience that is very difficult to replicate in a classroom. Yeah. So we have students who vastly improve their oral advocacy skills, their writing skills, but more important for me, I get to work with students who may never have the opportunity to sit down with somebody who observes how they speak, what they do when they speak, and give them a chance to correct that before they're then shot off into the world, where they'll probably never get the chance to. Well, that's great. So in this interview, what we're going to do is break down the interview from child stage all the way to the oral arguments, but are uh, predominantly will be focusing on the oral arguments and the preparation for them. So you also conduct all of the tryouts, I believe, right, for University of Ottawa mooting teams? Yes. Yeah, so the for almost all of them, we have one moot every third week of September is our tryout. Yeah. Weekend. And that more or less feeds all of our competitive moot teams, although there are some that do it separately. One of the reasons for that is that I just don't have the time to run separate moot tryouts. Mm -hmm. In an ideal world, I would like to have a problem that's designed for international moots and another problem designed for intellectual property rights moots. The reality is I just can't do that. It would also mean fewer students would try out. So what I do instead is I come up with a moot problem each year uh, that is based either on contract dispute, a tort dispute, something that every student after first year should have a grasp on, substantively anyhow. And then I put together a very simple problem and I ask the students to give me a position one way or the other. They have about seven or eight minutes to argue their position and I ask questions. And the whole point of that is for me to see how they approach a problem how they react to having their position probed by me, mm -hmm. and it's basically just a prima facie look at what I'm dealing with. From there, I can usually determine what level of student I'm dealing with, and it's easier for me to place them into a mood. Of course, I look at their first choices, so I won't put a student on a team that they're not interested in, but it's for the, those students that have given me the option to put them into different moods I'll usually look at not just their trial, but then their package to see who might be, what move might be better suited for that. At that initial trial stage, what are some of the characteristics that make a student stand out? Handling of questions. You know, it's easy for somebody to walk in with a memorized script. And that's usually, debaters do that. Uh, you have public speaking students who've done that. It's very difficult to walk in with a prepared four-minute speech and realize that the judge, me, is very interested in one of your points that arose after 30 seconds. And then I start probing that question. And if they handle it well, it's pretty impressive. Usually it's not handled that well. They're thrown off. They're not used to it. Uh, in short, they're not used to having their positions questioned. Mm -hmm. And that's what you have to do. A judge will question your position to make sure that your position is sound. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk a lot more about answering questions because that's one of the critical parts of uh, the mooting process itself when you're doing your oral, oral presentations. Also, before a child, so when somebody's in first year, is there anything they can do to better prepare themselves for uh, the competitive moots in the upper years? There's probably a lot, and it can start from the first day in class. 
whenever I'm, I point this out to some of my students when I teach first year courses, every time they're asked to recite the facts of the case or to essentially say, what's this case about, that's an opportunity to practice your oral advocacy skills. You can either approach it by saying, um, uh, I think the facts are, uh, uh, or you can try at that moment to synthesize in two minutes what the important facts of the case are. And if you get into the habit of doing that, by the time you come to try out, you're already ahead of the game. So you can start in first year, just your approach to study is that of what is this case about, Mm -hmm. What are the equities involved? What's the rule that applies? What's the outcome? What's the effect? If you always approach your first year learning in that way, you're already training your mind to become a better lawyer. As far as the bread and butter preparation, you should use a very simple formula. If you're given five minutes to speak, expect that no more than 70% of your time will be should be devoted to your actual script, mm -hmm. write out your script to hit a pacing of about 110 words, four minutes or whatever, however long it's going to be, times 110 words gives you the length of your script, then you start learning it and try to go off the script because oral advocacy is not an exercise of reading, it's an exercise of advocacy, taking the points and really emphasizing them. What, how many words per minute are you speaking right now? I'm speaking right now at about 130, what does, if I had to guess. What does thinking on your feet mean to you? What does thinking on my feet mean to me? It means that it shouldn't be from a blank slate. It should be based on hours of preparation so that when somebody asks you a question, it may not be a question that you had thought of phrasing-wise, but it's certainly a concept that you've thought about. For example, I use, sometimes I refer to it as my triangle example. I might not know the question you're going to ask me insofar as how you're going to phrase it, but I should have a good idea of what might trouble you. And the way I should know that is to honestly look at my case, look at the facts, look at the evidence. What's the weakness of my case? And I should expect that your question will get to the weakness of my case. So that when your question comes, what you would call thinking on your feet, is not so much thinking on your feet as much as it's recalling and understanding what that tension that you're raising is and then able to respond to directly. During the oral arguments, is there an ideal speed that a, that a mooter should be speaking at? 110 words per minute is the, for my, in my experience, the magic number. Mm -hmm. But it shouldn't be a constant 110. So 110 should be, and I'll try to emulate what 110 sounds like, it would be more along this speed and pace. Maybe a bit faster, but not much more. And I would use that to certainly deal with legal concepts, very important facts. But when I'm talking about more general points, suggesting names of parties that may not be as important, I'll increase to this pace, which is about 125 to 130. You shouldn't go any faster than that. And for our listeners, there are tools online where you can go and try reading at 110, 120 words per minute and see what that actually sounds like to you. So moving on to the student, there's certain qualities that a student should have also so that they're able to be coached, right? That's a big one. What are those qualities that a student should harbor so that they're coachable almost? Well, as a starting point, they're usually not the qualities that law students have. 
So that's always a challenge for me. Law students are some of the most resistant people I've ever had to deal with. <laughs> because they already come in with this belief, sometimes uh, unfounded, sometimes somewhat founded, but often they've been told all their lives that, oh, you should become a lawyer because you speak so well. Or they happen to be the loudmouth in the family, so everybody says, you should be the lawyer. And that's not really what a lawyer should be. Yeah. So they're usually, it's hard for me to turn around and look at somebody who has either had success in debating or has been told all his or her life that they're a great speaker for me to then say, actually, you're doing everything wrong. Usually the student looks at me like I'm the devil, and it's very difficult from there. The better students, the students that are much more coachable are the ones who may, may have thought that they were strong, but recognize that this is the beginning of their, of their it's coaching or the beginning of their journey and not the end. That I'm really there to show them how they can take whatever they have and increase it exponentially. So coachability is big. And there's so much that goes into that. I've yet to find two students who are the same. Yeah. So far as the technique I have to use for students differs based on the student. I can be more difficult with certain students. I have to have a lighter touch with others. And so that, uh, there's no, I don't have any formula to say every time I deal with a student, this is what I do. I just have an idea of what I'm trying to do and then based on I'll throw a question here, I'll throw a criticism there, and I watch the reaction, and from that I'm usually able to figure out how am I going to get through to this student. How can a student work on being more coachable? That's a great question. Usually it comes down to having to have a very sober talk with yourself. Sometimes a student just has to realize that I have certain insecurities, this is why I'm resistant to getting help, and now the question is, am I going to allow those insecurities to overtake and prevent me from getting the help, or am I just going to let go of that finally and realize that it's only my insecurity, nobody else sees it. And very often I'm able to break through that in the student's songs. Like mm -hmm. They get to exhale finally and say, well, it's not really a big deal. And then the progress shoots up. And for me, that I get a lot of pleasure out of that, because then I see I've kind of hit a point in this person's life where... That's it. Whatever nonsense they believe was going on in their head, and they actually believed it, they can just get rid of it now, and we can we can move to great places. And we've had that happen with students who really have just opened up and realized how great they could be. And the sooner I guess they can turn that around in the in the coaching process, then the better they will be by the end of the product. Uh, yeah. Then uh, when the move comes around, and yeah. probably not only when it comes to winning, but when it comes to everything else outside their life too. I, I, I know it sounds almost uh, you know how can one little moot have such an impact on your life? But I see it with letters from former students who do come back and say, "Thank you, you know these things, and you were really tough, but I'm so happy." It, it's it's really, and of course that's you know when they say, "Why do you teach?" Well. When you get emails like that, it's very easy when when I'm thinking about I've had enough and I just want to go lie on a beach for the next 10 years. <laughs> then I get an email like, okay, I'm coming back in September. Chris, we recently learned something new about financing your legal education. We definitely did. We learned about the Scotia Professional Student Plan, something I wish I had known about three years ago when I started law school. Yeah, man, it's a neat program and has some unique benefits. 
It comes as a package, which includes a line of credit, credit card, and a checking account. Yeah, and it actually pays your monthly line of credit interest automatically using the money in your line of credit. It takes care of the interest payments for you. It's one less thing you have to worry about. And one more reason for you to focus on your contracts reading. Or maybe where to go out this Friday night. <laughs> That's true. To learn more about the Scotia Professional Student Plan, contact Greg Moore at gregA.moore at scotiabank.com or visit your local Scotiabank location where someone friendly will be happy to help you. Alright, so the team is put together. They have the problem. They just open the email. What's the first thing you want them to do? I want them to read it. I, I offer very little help at the beginning and I do it very deliberately. So I just want them to read the problem and I usually set a meeting and I let everybody talk. What are your in, impressions, your thoughts? Every, almost every time, the student will come in and say, I've got the problem mastered, I've got the answer, and we're done here. I can't believe all this talk about these problems being difficult the weekend that I figured it out. And I always love that moment, because that's where I know I'm about to, to, to slap them pretty hard. The reconstruction <laughs> begins. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, the breakdown first. The worst thing for me, and now maybe people will do it if they listen to this, is for them to come in and say, well, I realize how intricate this problem is, and then I, I said, darn, you're really, you're, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I need to figure some other technique out, but usually that's not been a problem. So read the problem, show up to the meeting, tell me your thoughts, and then I slowly, not for all of their thoughts, I just say, well, what about this line? You're telling me that it was a clear acceptance, students love using the word clear, and then I'll point out a line that maybe makes it not so clear, and they start slowly realizing that what they thought is a lot more difficult to support. Mm -hmm. And then we open to the next level where they have to go back to the problem and find out whether or not their assumptions were real or not. And assumptions are dangerous for lawyers. Lawyers really should approach problems without assumptions. You can build your assumptions in later to finish the story. But if you're working with an assumption, which is really a form of bias, then every piece of information you're looking at is being seen through the lens of a bias, and you won't get the truth. Yeah. You really I, Yeah, uh, I find sometimes that it's hard to recognize that I even have a bias or an assumption that's operating behind what I'm doing. So how would you suggest someone identify it? Well, and, and I'll call it easy, but one easy way is to force yourself to do the counter-argument. Mm -hmm. It's easy to say, it's harder to do, because if your bias is so strong, your counter-argument is weak. And then you're tempted to say, ah, you see, I was right in the first place. So if you can have an honest counter-argument, then it starts working well. One, one way, and this is a bit later on in the process, where I found it's effective to get students to turn their minds, is when I force them to argue the other side. And that's when they start seeing that their earlier assumptions weren't quite as solid as they thought. But that would be one way. Give me the counter-argument. Another technique is to objectively lay out the facts and then find the best argument for the fact in one direction and the best in the other, and then it's a grid. And the moment you start seeing that one side has five arguments and even if the other side has ten, there's still five arguments on what you thought was no arguments. And that's usually a visual way to get students to see it's not as simple as I thought. One of your big emphasis is also on reading the facts multiple times. Yes. So how many times should a person be reading their facts and actually know what's going on in a problem? 
ideally it's every night before you go to bed. Yeah. And as an experienced mooter would know, that helped. And there's a reason for it. When you read facts at the beginning, you're, it's a blank slate. You're going in and you read the facts. Even if you're able to absorb every fact, which is unlikely, you're still absorbing them with a blank slate. You don't know why a fact is important until you start figuring out the issues. And as you start figuring out the issues, and as you start building your arguments, facts that you didn't know what to do with suddenly become important. So by the time you're getting towards the end of the process, before you're going to make your oral submissions, you have, we would hope, thought about the problem a lot, built up arguments. Now when you go back and read a fact, you might say, wow, that fact never seemed so important back then, but now I can actually use it to support an argument. Mm -hmm. So certainly once a week should be a, a true reading, rereading of the facts, and as you approach the actual argument date, you should be reading them every day. Yeah. One of the other, um, I guess, a lot of the mood teams work in teams, whether it's teams of twos or teams of fours. How can a team be really honest with themselves and make sure that they're pushing each other to the best team possible? That's, that's again, because that, in, that brings in personalities, insecurities again. The, the best answer is to start off with an agreement that nothing we say in this room is ever taken personally and we won't reveal any animosities to the outside world. So if you can have a safe place with a team, that's a great starting point. That's, it's a lot easier said than done. But if you can at least do that, then that's a good way to start. The other way is to, and this is something I, I do, it's not comfortable, but I will usually call out students in front of everybody else to say, so-and-so, you have a very strong personality and I notice you don't take criticisms well, then I look to the other team and say, I better not see any of you not criticizing him because he's really a difficult character. And difficult character, I don't want you to ever react to that. So I'm, I'm trying to maybe bring up what often people don't want to talk about. Because mm -hmm. in the end, it comes out. And it comes out either in, there's a reason the team never went beyond the point, because they're too scared to really push one of their friends uh, past a certain point. So I can sometimes step in and just force the issue. I don't like doing that. I, I get absolutely no pleasure in it. But... Mm -hmm. I, I really don't put my needs ahead of the team. So I'll make myself uncomfortable, possibly hated, if it means it's for the best of the team. And in the end, when they realize it, then they don't hate me as much. Uh, so, so, yeah, that's, that's one thing. That's, that's, uh, if you can be truthful with each other. But it's not always easy. There's a lot of baggage that comes into just being a law student. Yeah. Is it better when one of the students on the team is a leader? Again, really good question, and I think logically it would make sense that you should have a leader, but the leader shouldn't emerge too quickly. I think the leader should be almost chosen by the peers. You, know, you can have somebody at the beginning who takes charge of certain points, maybe organizing the meetings, making sure people show up, and that's a form of leadership. But a real leader is rarely the person who thinks they're a leader from the get. Often what I've seen as the most effective leaders is what a true leader should be, which is everyone just naturally looks to somebody to be the leader. And once that happens, it's important for that person to then act like a leader, which is, doesn't always happen. 
But that so it is so the, the the short answer is yes, you want a leader. The more difficult answer is how do you get that leader? One thing I don't do is say you must be that leader. Okay. What I will do is push somebody to be a bit more active if I think they're not you know they're they're a bit too deferential. So in the past I've had experiences where I've had students who are a bit more quiet than others, but it was obvious really should have been the leader. Uh, certainly intellectually, driving arguments, but they may have needed my push to say, all right, it's time for you to step it up a bit. Going back to just team uh, for a little bit longer, students are usually hesitant to come to the coach and talk about what might be happening in the team itself. Is that something that you think students should be doing more often, or you think it's better for them to resolve their disputes, issues, whatever's happening in the team themselves? Yeah, I, ideally they can resolve their own issues. I try to tell students, I'm not your mother or father, but of course it's circumscribed by there are certain things that are not tolerated. So anything that falls beyond, you know, if it's a personal attack that's just not tolerated, they, they should always feel free to come to me and I, and I make that clear. But if it's just a matter of somebody isn't working as hard as the others, that's an internal problem because that's reflective of life. You will end up in a law firm where somebody's not working as hard as the other one. What are you going to do? Call your parents? No. You can either sit and take it and do the extra work, or you can confront the person and say, listen, you're not doing enough work and I can't do it all. That's how it should happen in life, because it, you know, that's what actually does happen. So I try to make sure the moot process will also give them skills for life. So internal matters like that, they should deal with themselves. I don't even want to hear it. And one thing I do to kind of push that is I tell them, you get a group grade for the memorial, the written submissions. And I don't care if somebody has done no work, they're getting as good a grade as you who did all the work. Mm -hmm. That's how life works. You don't get to go to court and say, give me more costs than my partner because I did more work. Yeah. That's just not how it works. And with that in mind, then it's up to them. Are they going to be the person who all their lives are going to be victims and just do all the work? Or are they going to use this chance to, to learn the skills they probably will need in, in their future to say, no, no, I need you to start doing work. And sometimes it's just a matter of somebody saying, well, I don't trust this person to do the intellectual work, but I certainly can trust them to do formatting. Let them do the formatting. Let them pick up the cases. Let them do some photocopies. There are ways to, to handle people who are maybe not deliberately not working, but just don't have the same abilities. And again, that's a lesson for life. That was part one of our conversation with Professor Damesis. Look out for part two launching in the next couple of weeks where we talk about strategies behind solid oral arguments. Thanks for tuning in. This is The Law School Show.